Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. Today we're welcoming back onto the program a special guest, Emra Safa Gurkan. Emra, welcome back. Hi, Chris. Emra Safa Gurkan is Associate Professor or Docent Doctor at Yirmi Dokuz Mayas University, May 29th University in Istanbul, where he has a position in the Political Science and International Studies Department. Perhaps more importantly for our audience, he is also one of the original creators of this podcast. Those who have been with us for the almost seven years that we've been in business now will recognize his voice from many episodes about subjects such as Corsairs and pirates in the Mediterranean, renegades, people going across the Muslim-Christian divide, and various other subjects, as well as many interviews he conducted both in English and in Turkish. And one in Spanish, actually. And one, yes. That, that didn't get... <laughs> and who could forget the one episode we did in Spanish with Oscar Aguirre de Mandojano, Uh, and all the various moments that Emra has enjoyed on the podcast. Um, he is now emeritus, a less frequent guest than he used to be. So we're very excited to have him on to talk about a new book that he's published. The title in Turkish is Sultan and Jasuslara, The Spies of the Sultan. And this episode is for the English-speaking audience out there that won't have the chance to read this really fine and detailed archival work in Turkish. And indeed, what we'll be talking about in this episode is the subject of spies and espionage in the Mediterranean during the early modern period with a focus on the Ottoman Empire. Now, this Turkish book, which has just come out from Kronik Kitap uh, in Turkey, is actually based on uh, a section of your dissertation that was published in English, finished at Georgetown University in 2012, and hopefully to be published, to be transformed into a book very soon, if I can actually... Uh, get that done in the future. Mm -hmm. This is only one part of it, so mm -hmm. it was about espionage in general with a focus on Ottoman, three examples, the mm -hmm. Ottomans, the Venetians, and the Habsburgs who at that time ruled Italy, Spain, mm -hmm. uh, the Benelux countries, and uh, part of Austria. So these two, these, these two big empires and Venice. So it was just a general thing, but for a Turkish audience, I thought uh, if I'm going to write something in Turkey, it should have been stuff that I would not be able to include in an English book. So that's why I just get that one uh, chapter out of it and made it a 300-page book. That's what it is, basically. Right, in, in sort of our overtime conversation that you'll find only yep. on our website, outofhistorypodcast.com, we'll talk to Emra about the nitty-gritty of sort of expanding that piece of the dissertation into a book and specifically in, in writing it for a Turkish-language audience. And indeed, um, Sultan and Jasus Larur, Spies of the Sultan, is sort of like one of the only major works we have on espionage in the Ottoman Empire during the early modern period at this time. Yeah, it is true. Because, uh, I mean, it is strange for such an um, interesting subject. Nothing had, been ever, uh, had ever been written uh, on that subject for neither by the Ottomans here in Turkey nor anybody else uh, abroad who actually had the chance to see other archives. Nobody had written anything else. Yeah, it is fascinating. After reading the book, I realized just how important and central espionage was to certain aspects of, of politics in the early modern Mediterranean. And, and perhaps there are various reasons why maybe the topic hadn't been broached, either because the sources require a, a special approach or there might be an assumption that sources are difficult to find by virtue the, of the fact that espionage is secret. But also I think that historians of the present uh, and certainly broad readership of the present may have certain preconceptions about what, what espionage really is this sort of shape how we address the topic. And maybe that's where we can start our conversation because I think, you know, the image of, of modern espionage that comes out of popular fiction uh, and film is, is certainly an exciting one, very much in, in the vein of James Bond. But in your book, 
the picture we get is a little bit different. We certainly have various intrigues and 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 uh, familiar uh, spy-like situations. Well, my book is like, if you go with the film metaphors, it's not like Godfather, it's like Sopranos. We have to demystify right. the uh, perfection. If you, if you really think of an organization or the methods of peop- based on people who never makes mistakes, everything goes smooth, we eventually fall to uh, the trap of uh, teleology or trap of right. conspiracy theories. But when you look at the 16th century, it's definitely, even if you really look at the serious studies of the 19th or 20th century uh, espionage in the First or Second World War, you'll see a lot of ma- mistakes are made. Generally, agents are clumsy people. The organization lacks any uh, coherence. or It's not a world in which everything goes perfectly smooth. It's like, you know, like in a Mission Impossible or James Bond type of situation. Yeah. I wish it was. I wish it were because it would have been then right. much more interesting to study. But what I did want to aim with this book is to demystify this image of a perfect spy. Right. And so part of this demystification is, as you said, uh, showing the spies to be human and fallible, not super spies, so to speak, but very much regular historical actors acting in a particular context, bringing out that messiness uh, of the process, but also to highlight that rarely was espionage in the early modern Mediterranean carried out by quote-unquote professional spies in the sense of people trained solely for the job of espionage for whom that's like basically the only thing they do One thing most people don't understand, even some historians of the modern period, is that when you talk about early modern or medieval ages, you talk about certain concepts uh, within brackets, like capital, state, mm-hmm. and professional is one of them. And professional is really rare to find. Prime ministers are not professionals. Most bureaucrats are not professional. We're talking about a household. We're talking about a state in the making. So if you go to a medieval era and you go to a sultan or a king, you'll see there are few professionals around, right. uh, around this ruler. In the 16th century, we have the first steps of professionals, but they're few in number and not definitely in espionage. So this is a century. If you go to 14th century, you will right. find no professions at all. 16th century, there are certain efforts in the path of professionalization or standardization. They will eventually fail and we will have to wait until the First World War to see a professionalized cater of spies. In the Ottoman Empire? For, anywhere in the world. Oh, wow. Anywhere in the world. Even for professional diplomats, you'll have to wait the end of the 19th century. Okay, maybe in the late 18th century or the early 19th century you have stuff, but really for a diplomat school, for stuff like that, you'll have to wait. Yeah. Uh, these are these are these come only very uh, late, and even then we have we have to leave a lot of room for improvement, a lot of room for rookie mistakes, and you you will see in the 16th century people most spies are chosen. The basic characteristics of a, sh- a spy is basically his untrustability, uh, unreliability. His, uh, they talk too much, okay? They lie too much. They're often caught, and they have no training. I mean, even soldiers most of the time have no training. They, one of right. the big things that the Ottomans managed was to train a couple of thousand soldiers in a central line, which are mm-hmm. the Janissaries or the Kapukulus, not bigger than the Janissaries. At most 10,000 people. And that was a big achievement, the biggest achievement. So we wouldn't expect them to create some sort of spy school. Obviously, within the military, there are people who are specialized in reconnaissance missions mm-hmm. or exploring certain areas. But most of the time, what you require in a spy is a certain 
CV that comes with life. Like you have to be born on the other side of the frontier. You have to have mm-hmm. the necessary linguistic or cultural skills that will allow you to operate on the other side yeah. of the frontier just because you're born on that side or you have your family around or you mm-hmm. have traveled too much or just because you're a merchant or you're a pilgrim or you're a fort soldier of fortune or you're a corsair and the state will not give you money to go study those things or to learn those things you, yeah. you have to do it your you know on your own way i mean you've pointed to something that we've talked about in many of our conversations in the podcast which is that during the early modern period you kind of have to disaggregate the ottoman state itself and that sort of the fiction of a uh, a monolithic uh, totality an entity called the state during the ottoman period uh, is part of the problem and so once we've turned the state on its head and looked at the households and competing interests that exist within the state then spies, these kind of liminal figures, offer a natural window for exploring it further. Even even today, there are rivalries between the institutions, and most of the time, most of the times, we have these spy scandals because institutions from the same camp expose each other. Right. So there are rivaling institutions. If you look at the history of the French Secret Service, you'll see some of them are close to the left, some of them are mm-hmm. close to the right. So sometimes they expose each other in order to. Uh, as a part of this institutional rivalry. So right. similar rivalry exists even between the Pashas or the different interest groups that use their own espionage networks. It was totally yeah. fine. I mean, even today it happens. I mean, yeah, thank God it doesn't happen in the United States or Turkey at all, but it does unfortunately happen in some other countries throughout the world. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so let's move into our discussion a little further. Before we talk about the spies, let's set the political stage of the early modern Mediterranean. We know the Ottomans are big players, but for our audience who is mainly focused on the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, who are some of the other major players that the Ottomans are in engagement with? We have the Ottoman Empire, so basically controlling the eastern part of the Mediterranean and the Balkans. Mm-hmm. We have on the other side a conglomeration of different uh, kingdoms under one dynasty, which we call the Habsburgs, and most Ottomans think that the Habsburgs own only Austria. No, they also own the major branch, also on Spain, all the, um, all the possessions of Spain in America, and later Portugal after 1580, and also Italy, and most parts of Italy, some parts in France, uh, B- B- Belgium, Netherlands. So this is a huge conglomeration of feudal enclaves, kingdoms, mm-hmm. duchies that yeah. came together in one hand as the Charles V and later his son Philip II. So while these two empires were in rivalry, we have another really important power, a small merchant republic called Venice, who as a city in itself was a center of information because they have all these trade relations with especially the Levant, all these different mm-hmm. ports in the Eastern Mediterranean. So we have France allied with the Ottomans, we have the Safavids, and we have this imperial rivalry that made all these central governments, basically Madrid or Naples or Istanbul, invest so much money in an emerging craft of espionage Mm -hmm. at a time when information becomes a commodity for not only central government, but also for the trees. Because it's an age in which we have the printing press Mm -hmm. developing, we have the handwritten um, newspapers, before the newspapers, Mm -hmm. uh, which we call Avizi, it's like four-sheet handwritten newspapers that the scribes used to Mm -hmm. uh, produce and uh, distribute. And we have all these intensification of trade or communication systems and epistolary networks, people start writing. So we have a high demand on the side of the state and also on the side of civilians for fresh information. And we have a lot of, a number of uh, uh, scoundrels who wanted to sell information, whatever information they fabricate or they lay, they lay their hands on right. in order to make money. I so, would have been one of them if I lived in the 16th <laughs> century. Would have 
would have loved to get all this money by basically writing a couple of letters and just you know putting them in in cipher basic stuff yeah well i can imagine you'd be good at it though we're very happy to have you within the ranks of the historians so i, I just want to recap what you said you you mentioned imperial rivalry and of course the imperial rivalry you're talking about is is the ottomans and the Habsburgs. but then within in the, the mediterranean within the, the habsburg realm you actually have a number of centers of political power that are each sort of separate nodes in these espionage networks yeah. as i understand it yeah. within the ottoman empire which encompasses the entire eastern half of the mediterranean during this time are there also different centers different nodes of espionage with competing interests or does the ottoman state operate no, it's not united at all first of all for pragmatic reason you have uh, espionage in the frontier and espionage in the center mm -hmm. and espionage in the frontier will, will will ask for war more than the center that's obvious okay. so if you get uh, nobody will tell write you from buddha say oh everything is peaceful down there because people in the buddha would want fight. But even more importantly, there are different pashas with different agendas. So when they brought their own information on the uh, in front of the divan, they most of the time manipulated. And there's mm -hmm. a good story on which I wrote a art, separate article mm -hmm. called Fooling the Sultan, but also it's in the book, in which we see a number of corsairs headed by Uluchali who were brought here from Algiers, okay, and who were given posts in the Imperial Navy and the Arsenal, when they wanted to reignite a war between the Madrid and Naples on the one hand and Istanbul mm -hmm. on the other in order to make the Sultan send out a huge fleet, mm -hmm. the Sultan rejects saying, look, we got a war going on since 1577 in the Iran front with the Safavids, so we don't have enough money to spend on the Navy. This mm -hmm. means all these Corsairs will, have, will be reduced to 20, 30 galleys here and what they could do was to transport shipment to the Eastern Front from the Black Sea. Nobody's interested in that. Because if you go to the Mediterranean, you will have too much, too many ships, which mm -hmm. means you will have too much positions for yourself and also for your slaves. And mind you, the leader of this quote-unquote Mediterranean faction mm -hmm. had 3,000 slaves, okay? So you have to feed them. But if there's a war, if there's a huge uh, fleet, then you, you would, 600 of them, according to document that I had, Found 600 of them would be incorporated in the state, so they would be given money, and that money would go to him. So yeah. everybody has something at stake. So these are the hawks of the, of the Ottoman Empire. So what they do is to fabricate information. Mm -hmm. So they all provide fake intelligence in order to provoke the sultans, sultan to fight the Habsburgs. So they are exaggerating the military preparations in Barcelona, Naples, and stuff like that. When this was not enough, they even produced the mise-en-scene, a, a theatrical act, in order to fool the Ottomans. In one day, in one of these inspections, there's this Greek priest showing up and crying, you know, with cries in his, in his eyes and saying, look, a story in which he was attacked by, with other Turks by the Maltese Corsairs somewhere in the Aegean coast. Mm -hmm. So everybody got uh, enslaved. And the Maltese Corsairs, who are basically the nemesis of the Ottoman Corsairs, mm -hmm. asked about Uluchali, the Kabudana Darya, the Grand Admiral of the Ottoman Empire. Mm -hmm. And when they learned, he's at Black Sea carrying victuals for the army, and they laughed and they liked it so much. Mm -hmm. or, and they said, we're going to have too much... Uh, we're going to have too much uh, spoils now that Uluchali is out of the picture. And then uh, the story goes on. The Greek priest runs away, comes to the Tersana and cries and you know laments the situation. And Uluchali acts really cool, dismisses him. But his man takes him to, after this mise-en-scene, after this theatrical mm -hmm. act is over, they took him to uh, the Grand Vizier. And the Grand Vizier listens to the same story in which the, you know, his 
decision not to open a Mediterranean front is basically criticized severely. So they put him in the falaka. They just <laughs> beat the guy, and he confesses. He has never been on a galley. He was paid by the Ottoman Grand Admiral to create such a story so that in order to create a scandal that would push the other viziers into uh, spending money, into declaring war against the Habsburgs. And this comes at a time when the Ottomans and the Habsburgs were negotiating a truce, a ceasefire that would end the six-decade-old uh, war between these two empires. Mm -hmm. So, And when this became known publicly, nobody, nobody did anything to uh, Uluchal, not even reprimand him. Mm -hmm. What they did was to promise a large fleet for the next year, what Sultan personally. So what we get from this story is that, one, such things are very yeah. uh, acceptable in the game of politics. So right. Second, it's proxy conflicts. Yeah, second, if you invite Corsairs, if you just promise them, and it is stays responsible to find them somewhere to attack. Yeah. The establishment accepts the fact that these guys come from Algiers where they... They were getting so much booty and so much plunder from attacking the. So much booty, so much plunder. Yes, that's yeah, so much. So we much can put plunder. that on a loop with a with a beat for like the, <laughs> the music of this podcast. Anyway, so much so much plunder from attacking the Western Corsairs, West Western Coast. So you invite them to Istanbul, and you don't find you can't find them any 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 spoils on or like any jobs or any opportunity because twenty years later another Grand Wizard will complain about the situation that we cannot get Corsairs back to Istanbul because now they don't want to, they won't want to come for 20 years later because we, having realized Algiers makes, in Algiers they can make much more money. So you see stuff like that in which they produce false witnesses, false information, mm -hmm. theatrical scenes, shows us that we do, we do not talk about one state uh, and a state interest that the political scientists like so much mm -hmm. talking about unitary state and uh, there's a lot of discussion for the 20th yeah. century in, in in today's historiography about whether states are unitary and the realism school of thought mm -hmm. actually defend that but it's a kind of a bs when it comes to uh, the 16th century ottoman empire yeah and we see two dynamics there we see on one hand something that might be found in other studies of borderlands across time which is that local actors while often we think of local communities as victims sort of of uh, borderland conflict between different states. You also see them as, as actors participating uh, in some of the intrigues that could even fuel or escalate conflicts. Uh, but on the other hand, we see those people also being deployed uh, as proxies, so to speak, for internal political conflicts within the empire by different major figures who have their own interests. Uh, so it's really a complex picture of how everything comes also, together. Also, it's also about patronage. Like, right. Sokol never wanted to fight the Venetians, okay? Mm -hmm. And when he wanted, what he wanted was to uh, fight in the Croatian front because all the Sokol clan had, you know, had people there. Mm -hmm. A Cyprus expedition, he would gain nothing, but his rivals would be the commander-in-chief, so he didn't want that war. And if the water, war is inevitable, at least it could have been in, in the part where his own creatures, his own... Yeah, party members, yeah. so to speak, had something to gain from it. So the same thing with the Mediterranean faction or the Corsairs. They won a war in the Mediterranean. They, they can't care less if Tabriz fell because they won't have no, nothing to gain from it. And that's why you have, the information you have to provide should be exactly uh, along these lines. So the Hofstrucks are preparing too much mm -hmm. and there's a, there's a military buildup somewhere. Weapons you know, of mass yeah. destruction. Like, yeah, exactly <laughs> like that, actually, yeah. If you're an oil guy, you want war, not in Kosovo, but in Iraq, and for yeah. that, uh, you, don't, you don't make a big fuss about North Korea, but, uh, you know, Saddam might be your biggest problem.
Well, so another thing that one notices here is that, of course, we know that during the early modern period, and as you've pointed out, even today, the, the lines between diplomacy, espionage, trade, piracy, Corso, the, the activity of Corsairs, which is a, another issue, privateering, uh, these, these boundaries are blurred. And I guess certainly the practice of espionage in the Ottoman Empire during the early modern period falls short of being properly institutionalized, although we do see early modern states working and trying to have more coordinated efforts uh, at espionage. So uh, what do you make of this dynamic? To summarize, first, 16th century, the central governments are embryonic. From the patrimony, from the household, from the the fans and crowd or whatever you say, entourage of a guy with a sword, it is turning into a state, not in the Weberian sense, slowly, okay? Yeah. Mind you, the guy who circumcised the sultan later became a grand vizier. Can you think of that now? This is the, <laughs> the, the household of the sultan and the state are that much, okay? Yeah. And all these, you know, big important nobles, uh, we have Leve, Kushe, and all yeah. the daily needs of Louis XIV were taken care of by these uh, ministers around him. I mean, by these big nobles, not ministers. Yeah. You see, the, the, the person of the king or the sultan Okay, are still the yeah. state. Yeah. So, but there are certain professional bureaucratization. This mm-hmm. is what is important. It's not a, the, um, the embryonic state comes into playing. And espionage might be a little bit of a part of that. More in certain states, such as Venice, which was a republic in which you have a high level of institutionalization because you yeah. don't have a ruler, you don't have a household. And Madrid tries certain institutions because they had to, because they, they are a conglomerate of different mm-hmm. legal entities which we call the kingdom and duchies the ottomans didn't have to do that much so it doesn't mean that the ottomans didn't have a system they had a system but they just didn't put them under one institution which left uh, which left us a paper trail from which we can study those things and that is why we had to wait until 2017 or 2012 for a book that writes something a little bit analytical about uh, the Ottoman espionage. Because if you go to the archives before the 19th century, you will find very few. And in mm-hmm. you will find next to nothing about details of the Ottoman espionage. You will see, okay, there's a spy sand mm-hmm. and information came and one. Yeah. And it's part of a larger ledger of uh, the decisions of mm-hmm. decisions taken in the Diva. Right. So on, it's indirectly recorded that there is certain... So most of the a few articles that was written only with the exception of uh, Gabor Agostino's article, and he was my advisor, so he actually was the guy who started all this, but then, uh, you know, passed the buck on to me. Mm-hmm. All the articles used to say the Ottomans sent, the conclusion was the Ottomans used spies. Like, this is, I mean, you don't need, you don't need, this is truism. You don't, need, you don't need to say that. Obviously, an empire, sixth century old, you spies. There is no, I mean, mm-hmm. there's no rocket science, yeah. obviously. But the, the more interesting point, in your opinion, is that the, the yeah. spy networks were, by, by design, diffuse, much like yeah. power was diffuse yeah. in the Ottoman Empire. Yeah, power was diffuse. And just because it was diffuse doesn't mean it wasn't effective for the it goals of those involved. I can, say, I can make the same statement for diplomacy as well. Just because the Ottoman yeah. didn't have permanent amb- ambassadors abroad doesn't make them less efficient in diplomacy. Yeah. This crazy obsession with institutionalization can have merit for 19th and 20th century, but it's teleological. Nobody in the 16th century said, oh, look, this thing is oral, or this thing is not written, so we will, okay, there is this other system that is all institutionalized, so it's more efficient. This mm-hmm. is not the case. And I yeah. have, and I can say the Ottoman Spanish can be proven to be more efficient than 
at least the Spanish espionage, for many other reasons. The institutions can give you advantage, but that was one of the uh, one of the one of the things that you will look at when you look mm-hmm. at efficiency. Something that is really hard to understand, by the way. There is a, this uh, the argument in intelligence studies that the efficiency in intelligence is really mm-hmm. hard to. Uh, sometimes you get right intelligence, but you don't act upon it. Just like the French in the Second World War, they got all the information, right information about the Nazis. They just didn't take it into account. And sometimes you get the uh, wrong inf- intelligence, but last minute something changes. Sometimes, sometimes you, you, it was, it's impossible for you to know. And most of the time, you don't have enough paper trail to evaluate that. Mm-hmm. But what we can say, and what I try to, let's say, what I try to do was to try to understand how fast information traveled into the Ottoman Empire and we had other numbers for the Spain uh, for the, for Venice and my conclusion was that one the Ottomans got win on the recent developments in Europe and in the Mediterranean on a, in a right time the right manner when compared to Venice second all the contemporaries think and speak very highly of the Ottoman mm-hmm. espionage and third uh, I have put together some really interesting spy stories that would have that should have uh, explained to us how complex these uh, operations can be. And th- most of the time, when you concentrate on the spy, you talk of the spy, not the secret service, because they most of the time work more than one or two. It was one of the big surprises that never happened to me with the Corsairs, because the Corsair yeah. doesn't work in, for five states. It's not possible. Yeah. But let's say you memorize, and it become, they become your friends. I mean, I know over... Hundred spies in person, their families and stuff like that. I don't like they're like people I know. I used to put my names. They're pictures. like characters friends, in your life. No, my Facebook friends pictures on them, so that uh, every spy <laughs> has somebody attached to, uh, attached to, uh, you know, to visualize better. Most of them appear over and over again. Like when I went to Venice, yeah, after Smancas, Spain, oh, there were all these three, four key guys. Apparently, if they pass from Venice, they make different offers. or sabotage. Mm-hmm. Uh, projects or uh, different uh, or suicides they mm-hmm. offer the services of their own information or they mm-hmm. go to you go to Genova you see the same guy you go to Fr- Florence you see the you, you see the same guy I haven't gone but if you go to Vienna probably you'll see the same guy if yeah. he ever passes even remotely uh, from that so they're like rock stars wherever they go you just you know they leave right. they leave trail of uh, scandals and all these crazy projects uh, that the central governments were in the century were so eagerly were so eager to spend money on. And we're going to hear more details about some of these spies that Emra knows oh so well uh, right after our music break. Before we take that break, I want to ask real quick, Emra, you're talking about a lot of guys. Uh, what was the role of women in espionage? Was there a place for women to oh, yeah. transmit? Uh, secret information and this kind of stuff it seems like that would be the case yep 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 they're important but they're not like I mean the lack of mobility mm-hmm. kind of precludes them from being like spies mm. in action but they can be great informants right in a very genderly segregated world they can still put middlemen in order to I mean they're easily bought with clothes and stuff like that extremely I mean I don't want to play into the yeah but most of the time yes do you have an example like that yeah Safiya Sultan always sold information for a piece of cloth but the cloth was the most important thing around that time not not like the not like the sweater you're wearing i mean the silk clothes <laughs> and stuff like that that was the way you accumulate wealth i mean it's not like you get jewelry or like a you know valentine's day present and you start talking it's just that was 
the thing that you right. get in if because you can have a you can open a bank account right if you have money you need a, some some mm-hmm. commodity okay so cloth was one of them but most of the time yes they send them rich cloths or presents or stuff especially the ambassadors and ex- mm-hmm. in exchange they got information information from them. so you There's have a- even a one unprecedented one on one conversation you cannot see an ottoman high high class ottoman lady christian or muslim let alone anybody from the palace when the domenico the jewish doctor had to treat as a patient the wife of rustem mm-hmm. the, the best they could do is to show just one centimeter square of his of her skin mm-hmm. so that he could get a pulse and when the grand vizier hold heard about that he was very upset so in a world that much segregated between the genders right one of the bylaw the venetian ambassador had a one-on-one conversation behind the curtain right with an ottoman sultana and took information from him so right. that that's really i don't want to i obviously maybe for the for normal reader who believes that Mimar Sinan was in love with uh, Mihrimah Sultan or who watch uh, these TV shows, it's not that interesting. But for somebody who knows the right. 16th century society, Christian or Muslim, right. they're extremely veiled. You can mm-hmm. see them, if they are, you know, especially if they belong to higher society. And this hidden Christian diplomat actually managed to have one-on-one conversation, even though not so social, but still. Yeah, and I mean, this is something that actually came out from sort of a different angle in our conversation with Nina Aragon about the sonic environment of the palace and how women, even when they were not seen because they were in a different room or uh, were not necessarily parties in conversations, could hear and even sometimes speak from behind um, the various barriers that were there uh, and, 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 and indeed contribute to decision-making and all of that and, and meetings that are going on. In the palace, it's interesting the way you described it through this uh, gender-segregated lens. We can see how merchants would be effective um, conveyors and 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 indeed um, purveyors of information in the sort of maritime Mediterranean arena. But just the same, if you want access to information behind the walls of the household, of course, uh, getting in contact with a prominent woman and in the palace, and some are Venetian. You know, maybe right. your neighbor from Venice, or in the case of they the Maghrib, fit the description of those who cross the boundaries. And some of them are Christian. In the case of Maghrib, all these sultanas, mm-hmm. they are doing secretly practicing Christianity. Mm-hmm. I mean, treating all the, some of these religious priests who fell into captivity mm-hmm. in Algiers, they treat them so well because they're still Christians I and mean, they're forced to convert to Islam. Mm-hmm. Not in Istanbul, but it is also a possibility. Okay, so these guys still believe because, you know, as women, they are uh, by marriage forced to convert. They didn't choose that. Sometimes they can, but in those cases, so they may right. still have sympathy for their uh, lost lost religion, okay, forsaken religion. Right. It plays the stereoty- stereotypes yeah. about spies with their dual loyalties and competing uh, loyalties. But nonetheless, as you've said, um, having uh, another a foot on the other side of the boundary, whatever that boundary may be, is really c- critical to the well, conducting of espionage. Loyalty is also a very tricky concept. Where do you get your loyalty? From school, okay? You get loyalty from the media. You learn that you're Turk or you're American. From all these media in plural, mm-hmm. school is a medium, and yeah, yeah. media is okay. are different yeah. mediums that we didn't have in the 16th century. 
Right. So you have the household. You go to a mosque, yeah, unless you go to a mosque. I mean, you know about Dean and Devlet and stuff like that, but it's not like, I mean, it's not like you, you see the flag and cry and, uh, or you, 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 the, this is pre nationalist era. Mm-hmm. So you have to be pushing, yeah, the, pushing the brakes when you talk about any concept that makes sense in them. Yeah, that's something we've talked about in some yeah. of our other conversations. Yeah, how this is the one thing that er, every early modernist and medievalist talk over and over again. <laughs> we like that a lot. We're different, okay? You guys yeah. have different concepts. Uh, we're, we're special. That's the way of, uh, you know, self-glorification in a way. All right, well, we still got lots more to cover. We're going to take a quick music break and then be right back with Emra Safa Gurkhan talking about his new book, Sultan Ninja Suslara, Spies of the Sultan. Stay tuned. Okay, welcome back. Chris Grayton here with Emra Safa Gurkhan talking about spies in the Ottoman Empire and the early modern Mediterranean. Emra, just before the break, you said that you know over a hundred spies intimately, uh, and you know their families, you know their life details, and you've followed them all around the world. So, to give our audience a more granular picture of what espionage in the early modern Mediterranean looked like, why don't you tell us about one of your favorite spies and, and a story surrounding them? Well, I have. A lot of really favorite, but one that I always say, I always talk about him, you know, um, in all other interviews I made before, but I just can't, you know, this is a guy, only one year of his life we know, and he's got, he created so many it's problems. quite a for, year. Yeah, he's, <laughs> that was quite a year. Uh, this is a guy from southern France. Mm-hmm. He calls himself Baron de Lafage, but we don't know who he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know... He's in Istanbul in 1592 or 90. I, mean, I don't remember the date. It's in the book. He's, so in, in, in the chapter three, I talked about 10. I gave 10 stories of Ottoman spies. If we, you know, in the Habsburg and Venetian case, we had many, much more, m- many more people, but in the Ottomans, we, it's really hard to uh, track them down, actually. So this guy is from southern France. He's in Istanbul. He's working mm-hmm. for the Ottomans, but also for the English ambassador. And after that, we see him taking an Italian tour. First, he goes to Rome. He talks to the cardinal, and he speaks in front of the College of Cardinals, and he gets a a patent from them, a letter of recommendation type of thing. He gets their money. He gets their letter of recommendation. And when he returns to Istanbul, he's going to show show them to people, mocking the credulity of the incredulity of the uh, of the cardinals who believe this story. Then we see him in Florence. Okay, doing some dealing, the details of which we do not know, but probably he's also selling projects, mm-hmm. you know, silly projects or offering his services for money. So he somehow uh, fooled the Grand Duke of Tuscany and the French ambassador in Florence. And then we see this guy in Venice pulling a number of tricks. First of all, he goes to the Habsburg ambassador offering his services as a spy. And the Habsburg ambassador, Francisco de Vega, is an important guy because he will be the key guy of Hofstra espionage in uh, 10 years later. And around that time, he's a really, he really likes spies, but he's also a very intelligent guy. So he understands there's something wrong with the guy, so he politely rejects. And then th- we see this guy uh, uh, having convinced three, three or five, I don't remember, a couple of uh, youth 
uh, offers them offering 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 to take them to Istanbul, okay, so that they could learn Turkish and stuff like that. But then they realize he's, what he's doing is they're actually smuggling them trafficking into the Ottoman Empire. Yeah. yeah, trafficking them for slaves. So <laughs> Francisco de Vega, in collaboration with the Venetian authorities, impedes him, prevents him from doing that. So then he actually leaves. When he leaves, he takes. A boat, okay. He takes a merchant. He steps merchant galleon. The captain of which he actually fools again. He takes his money, offer telling that I'll, I'm going to buy you some uh, horses from the Ottoman Empire. The trading of which is forbidden, basically. So he takes the money and he actually ruins the guy who lost all his money. Then he comes to Istanbul. Whatever precious information he has, the name of the guys who's working for the Spanish in Istanbul. So he mm-hmm. basically. Co- destroy the entire uh, information gathering network, allowing, putting all these uh, critical figures in, uh, for Hafsuk Secret Service in Istanbul into jail. Mm-hmm. Luckily for the, for Madrid and Naples and the entire Christian world, perhaps, he will die a couple of months later in a plague. But I cannot think of what he is capable of doing if he actually survived or what he might have done and I, may yeah. not, I might not have found in the archives or... They, his activities might have gone unrecorded. Still, this is the most efficient uh, spy that I have ever. I mean, he the, the biggest scoundrel ever uh, that I have ever encountered. He's really, you know, he's quite a character. Unfortunately, I, we know only one year of his of his life. But what is what does that story tell us beyond? But that, that story a lot tells of... us that how easily they move. First of all, mm-hmm. he's a, he's a, he's from southern France, which is a Protestant. Mm-hmm. So he's working for the English government. Okay, okay. But mm-hmm. then he appears in Rome. Mm-hmm. Uh, talking to College of Cardinals as a Protestant, so how, how how do you do that? Then you get a patent, okay, and everybody is willing to. So he's an Ottoman agent. He's a he's a he's a he's an English agent, and he travels so easily, okay, and nobody touches him. And in the end, apparently, they trust him so much that they gave away the names of these spies that were working for the for Madrid or maybe for Florence as well. Yeah. So uh, the, the the that story tells us that how how easy. They move and how easy, how difficult it is to track them down, because most of the time, consider the fact that they may not use the same name. Yeah. Okay. And another story. I mean, if you look at similar stories, you also get to know that it's a very the 16th century is a very small world. Most of the time, people run into each other. Like t- two people from Valladolid can run into each other in Istanbul, and most spies are compromised like that. He's a let's say he's a guy from Naples, and he pretends not to be a spy that he he encounters in the street of Istanbul another guy from Naples, and they know each other. So he says, "Oh, look, this guy is not who he who who he claims is," mm-hmm. and then he gets arrested. So it's a very it's a world in which the same guys always you know uh, right. hang around in the same spots city center ports public squares in a number of 10 15 yeah. uh, port, port cities. cities so it's really a tiny fraction a of tiny the overall fra- geography yeah. of these only empires only a few people move and those who move they do the same thing they know each other and they come across each other very, it's kind of like being an ottoman historian Emra. that is that's what i was gonna <laughs> say it is actually true. you end up running into people in yeah. the weirdest places, but of that course we, because they, we operate in small circuits. Yeah, because you always hang around in the you know in the archives or a couple of places where you can you know uh, party in an economic way. So mm-hmm. especially it was really uh, whatever you go, it's really easy to you know uh, come across people of who does this similar stuff. But was there you. something like that on that level where there's actually a, any sort of uh, collective identity of no, uh, spies no, 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 and, you know. 
I mean, they would never, for it to be an identity, they would have to t say it. Right. But I mean, where everyone kind of knows they're in the know and all purveyors of information, so to speak. Well, all the purveyors of information are also merchants. Yeah. They're also, once in a while, it's like all the merchants are also corsairs in a way. Yeah. You're, you see, I mean, if you move, you have to do this job. If you don't give information and you move, they come and ask you anyways for mm -hmm. free. So let's say a new ship comes to the port. Authorities come mm -hmm. and ask you, what's up in Istanbul? What's up mm -hmm. in Naples? What's up, what's up in Avlonia? Yeah. So they ask you these sort of so you It's not like they're specialized. Certain people are. And there are certain people who speak for a number of informants and spies, the, the, the ringleaders, the spy mm -hmm. masters, yeah. who have to write down, who has to put them, because most spies are, you know, in alphabet, they don't know how to write, okay? And, or informants. So there's a couple of guys that are specialized because they knew how to write and how to put them in, 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 the, in ciphers or how to put them in, uh, uh, how to write with un invisible ink yeah. and how to post them what kind of method yeah. to use in order for the courier yeah uh, in order you know to make sure that the courier not get caught so there are a number of specialists like that and most of the time they are diplomats themselves mm -hmm. but in this case in istanbul where spain spain didn't have a dip ambassador it was the spies who actually mm -hmm. took care of this business but most spies were also because it, they never paid you enough yeah they had to have a job to make a living so spying on the side. Spying is a also, side hustle. Also to legitimize yeah. what do you do. Most of the time pilgrims, uh, especially Christian pilgrims who go around, but also mm -hmm. the Ottomans use them, Orthodox, mm -hmm. who go to the Council of Trent, an Orthodox, an Orthodox Archbishop, the Archbishop of Thessalonica, mm -hmm. who went to the uh, Council of Trent with the pretense that he wanted to have some input on the Orthodox side, turned out to be an Ottoman spy actually. So the Ottomans also use these religious guys because they are they can travel freely. A monastery is a big spot mm -hmm. for runaway slaves because you got a monastery, they take care of you. The Ottomans don't want to enter that much; they hide you. Okay, it, they were in accessible places, so most people use monasteries. Pilgrims, religious guys, travelers, diplomats who, by the nature of their profession, travel a lot, also provide information. Mm -hmm. Why not? Even today, I mean, those people who travel a lot, I mean, provide yeah. Uh, provides information for government. Look at the look at the Americans who ended up in the Richard Fryer. He's a serious scholar who ended up in there and provided information for the American government. Because if you and he is the, he's one of the most serious guys uh, for ancient Iranian history, and he says in his own he talks with all these intellectuals. Okay, he's an American in the 1950s. He came here and he has access to all these intellectuals and politicians. Okay, who who are his friends? Other people in the in the mm -hmm. embassy. Obviously, he's gonna exchange that information. He's not gonna unless you are really uptight guy. And he actually did that. So it's kind of spying. Okay. So mm -hmm. even today, I don't want to put the label spy on all the Ottomanists. Here, yeah. Well, don't worry. Yeah, uh, you wouldn't be the first yeah, one to do it, by no, the way. I don't, but that's by the nature of thing, okay? Yeah. Because you socialize with people and stuff uh -huh. like that. So most of the time, and especially if you're a ransom agent, like a trader mm -hmm. who actually arranged ransoming the transfer of money between the families of the slaves and the slaves and the owners of the slaves. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you, okay, who, whom do you see? You see the kings and the dukes and the viceroys on the one side? as the guys who are paying for that money, or the rich guys. Mm -hmm. On the other side, you get the sultan or, the, you know, uh, the pashas. So you, you you know both sides. Why not make a couple of money uh, on the side? I would have done it, like. 
if I had the opportunity. <laughs> it's the second time Emra has uh, volunteered himself another, as, a, another, as a spy and, on this podcast. Another trait, another trait that we have in common, spies talk a lot. You cannot imagine how many spies yeah. in the history of espionage got exposed because they're talking too much. Do you right. know how the leader of the French resistance got caught by the Nazis? Do you know why? Because his aide de camp used to call him Monsieur le Général all the time. They couldn't convince the guy not to tell this guy whose identity was supposed to be. That's that simple. He couldn't just do it. Right. And so I it's mean, that simple. And then you have all these conspiracy theories in which everything, or like uh, you have the idea of 24 yeah. or CSI New York or exactly. James Bond. Uh, everything is so... But that's what random. I wanted to ask you because you, you're de demystifying the spies. We already talked about your favorite spy, a really talented spy, but like, tell us about the, the, the opposite, the, the, two, the two incompetent spy. Two examples, but one is the cousin Livio Celeste who got caught three times and he is the nephew of the Ottoman Grand Admiral Hassan Veneziano. I don't know what he did, but getting caught three times requires a lot of talent. And the second guy, there's this guy, Luis de Portillo. He's writing from Ragusa and he is... He's reselling legendary stories 30 years old, like the fight in the Divan. People, the Pashas uh, took blade against each other. This happened in the 1530s, mm -hmm. but not in the 1570s. So all right. these old stories. Like he created this guy who works in the Imperial Divan, that relative of his. And when they realized that it's not true, uh, the Ragusans, mm -hmm. who were not Ottoman vassal, but a Catholic vessel. So they were like caught up mm -hmm. in between a rock and a hard place, rock being... Madrid and a hard place being Istanbul. Yeah. Uh, so they don't like spies that much. So the Ragusans actually cut his cut his ears and put him in a galley for life, which means that he's gonna roll without without ears. I don't know. You can you can roll without ears, no big deal. But he won't have <laughs> yeah, ears. Yeah, not really the issue. Roll. Yeah, and he will have uh, really bad teeth because your rovers lack of vitamin C. You know the name scurvy. of scurvy. Yeah, scurvy. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he's gonna have bad teeth and no ears, and his, he has to roll. In, in the galleys, that is the worst spy that I have ever encountered. That Nobody asked me that question. Maybe, so I just <laughs> answered on top of my head, maybe I can find a worst spy because they're really bad spies. Well, when you find a worst spy, let us know. We'll bring you back on the podcast to talk about it. But I do want to finish with, um, you know, sort of one of the major um, important findings, I guess, in your book, at least for me and I think for a lot of, people who flip through it, uh, is these encoded communications. Like you, we talked about the technologies of communication, the technologies of espionage in terms of you know, special inks and whatnot. And, and you have all these documents um, that are written in code mm -hmm. that require uh, you know, special tools to understand uh, what they say. And of course, that's, that's espionage par excellence, right? Like yeah. Deceptive communication. But you know, when I saw it, as someone who works in the Ottoman archives or, or any sort of state archive from the 19th and 20th century, I was immediately reminded of encoded telegrams, which, of course, are also meant to be sort of encrypted, um, difficult to read for, the, for those who are not supposed to be reading it, but are very much part of standard uh, state communication during the 19th century. Right? The Ottoman Empire conducts so much of its business over these encoded telegrams that are part and parcel of the Ottoman bureaucracy. And so I want to conclude this interview and we'll have more in the bonus session for our listeners who can't get enough of Emre Safa Gurkhan. I want to conclude... And how can they? Yes, of course. I want to conclude by asking what does the history of early modern espionage in the Ottoman Empire and, and more broadly the history of the, information the during that yeah. time yeah, say to the, to, the, to the later development of the modern state and the information state specifically? First of all, we, we don't know how, how much 
Uh, we don't know what Ottomans with these ciphers. First of all, most Ottoman, this is an argument by Nicola Vatan, mm-hmm. but most Ottoman correspondence was made orally. What yeah. brought this cryptography and stenography was the existence of resident diplomats, which means mm-hmm. that an English guy has to write two, three letters every month to be sent to London. Okay, so somebody can catch it. But if you are, you can, if you're writing from Istanbul to Buda, you can, you might as well as messenger without fear that anybody's going to intercept. Yeah. So you don't have, and there's an interesting story. So called one day, you know, summons the Venetian ambassador says, look, we are getting your couriers illegally, by the way. We're, mm-hmm. we're, we're robbing them and we find your letter. They're all written in code. We are friends. Why do you do that? And he pressured him, and he said, what he said that, look, you don't need to do that because you have your own, uh, whenever you want to send a message, you send a messenger, you have, you have nothing to fear because it's, hmm. you have one big chunk of empire, but we, I can't do that, somebody else. And so he the says, Ottomans confront them about... Yeah, so Kolo uh, said, don't yeah. write because we're going to steal your correspondence. In and they say, to, well, you have an oral uh, yeah, encryption, you, the yeah. best encryption of all, a silent... Yeah, tongue. you can do it, yeah. And also, um, uh, you, that's why you look at the 16th century, you can see some documents like what the ambassadors used to carry a couple of it's very formulaic and according to, this is an argument that was made for the first time by Nicola Vatan in which they are like passports everything will be said by the ambassador it's not like the detailed it doesn't give any detail of what the ambassador is here to say the ambassador knows about it it's just a it's just like the I-94 that we used to show to the uh, custom authorities when entering mm-hmm. US it's, it shows that you are the ambassador it's a, it's a mm-hmm. letter of uh, it's a it's a letter of recommendation. It's a, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a passport. Yeah, that's why the Ottomans didn't have to use that term. But I yeah. know certain spies writing from Italy. Okay, had to use that. But the the uh, this kind of cryptography uh, ciphers and invisible inks were developed for diplomacy, not for espionage. Because spies don't write as much as diplomats. But if you're mm. a diplomat in six different capitals, each, each, with each it means that every month you'll have like 20, 30 letters, each like five, six uh, mm-hmm. pages long, okay? So this kind of information has to be, and these couriers are very imperfect business. They go from animal lands. Of course, you have to develop that. As we know also in the Renaissance world, all these big polyglots of uh, the Renaissance world were deep into this mathematical thing, things and ciphers, okay? From Alberti to all these important uh, important people of humanism and renaissance. Mm-hmm. So part of their ideas were implemented, but also the cipher had to be by Venice and Madrid. And some of, some of, some of the scribes, a part of the scribes are developed, are specialized in cryptography. Mm-hmm. And they developed a huge, a complex system of ciphers that change every every six months, a year, yeah. and stuff like that. Most of them, the, the spies did not follow them, I ho- believe, I'm not sure, but I believe, they can't follow them to the fullest extent, especially if you're a spy. Mm-hmm. And Istanbul was a special case because these are the spies without a spy master as a diplomat. Mm-hmm. These are the spies operating in a place where they don't have, where, the, where their owner, where their, not owner, where their employer didn't have a diplomat. But if you, if, Venetians, for instance, that was a different thing. Venetian spies were given information to the bylaw, the Venetian ambassador here. Then mm-hmm. he puts everything as spy, uh, uh, everything in the in one you know melting pot, mm-hmm. and that was diplomatic correspondence. In the Spanish case, we have the spies correspondence as well, in which you see all these diverging stuff. Mm-hmm. But uh, the Ottomans, we do not know. I mean, because 16th century Ottoman, in this late 18th century, we have a lot of uh, encrypted stuff. 
as early as late 18th, we can find. But in the 16th century, you can't find anything. Uh, we do not know how they use spy, whether what, how they use cryptology, what kind of ciphers we have. There's just one article that defines four or five different type, types of mm-hmm. uh, ciphers that could be used in Arabic, but these are old and classical forms. I don't know what kind of different as a response to mm-hmm. this European thing, ha- whether they have developed a response from within. Uh, from within the uh, something that is applicable to their own alphabet. Well, that still leaves the question of the relationship of this early modern espionage to the emergence of a modern state that that really is all about information, whether it's documentation of its populace or communication uh, across long distances, or of course obtaining. Um, information about the other, about enemies and trade partners in these things. When you look at examples like France, for instance, or Colbert mm-hmm. France, what he basically did was to collect all the information possible. And Philip II did the similar, and the Ottomans used to do it in an economic sense with these talk readers and stuff. But you look at the Colbert example, which is basically the, the who solidified the emerging central government of France, was that he got all this information from all these provinces, put them in different almanacs, different books, and he created this library, which was a treasure trove of information, uh, as a result of which we can talk about a central state. Who knows about it? When you know a lot, you can interfere a lot. The Ottoman case, uh, the Ottomans were like much more oral and much more... It wasn't the case with the 16th century Ottoman Empire. It wasn't the Mm -hmm. case with the 16th century France either. But that kind of understanding of codifying, classifying, Mm -hmm. creating an information state is something very new that the Venetians had always done because they're mm-hmm. a republic. And the French may be the first to do it in the continental Europe only uh-huh. as late as the mid-17th century. So it's a right. little bit early to look at for something like that. The Ottomans and, didn't have it. But you see a relationship between yeah, obviously, the good. organization. The Venetians are a republic, so they're not a monarchy per se with a kind of... Uh, the guy patrimonial in charge of system. espionage changes every six months. Yeah, you okay. have to have a system. So then you need institutional knowledge, the, and, and that's why their archives are always been have always been so. Uh, they, they always have an archive that everybody could use, like every right. senator. It's right, an right. empire ruled by magistrates. It's, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's a republic. A republic is not me. They are not only elected people. They are lawmen. Okay, mm-hmm. not lawmen like shooting people. They're like yeah. <laughs> um, they're like legal people, yeah. uh, lawyers, and most of them educated in law. Okay, it's not like today's, which you can, uh, yeah. you know, get elected no matter your background. Most of the time, these guys were, yeah, uh, interested in those, educated in those stuff. So they create a system. And in our overtime session, we'll talk more about that and, and those archives, not just the Ottoman archives, but specifically the European archives that might prove most so of the research, fascinating. Most for, of the research, yeah. especially the operational research, comes from European archives. Yeah, yeah. And we'll, we'll talk about that in the overtime session. But uh, in terms of this interview, Emra, we're going to leave it at that. We've covered so much ground. We've talked about, well, how great of a spy you would be, how bad some spies were, how ingenious others were. And we've seen a really messy uh, and interesting picture of early modern espionage in the Mediterranean. It's always a lot of fun to have you on the program. You know, for the listeners who enjoy having Emma on the program, leave a comment on Facebook. Let him know that you want him back. Like we said, he's emeritus. He's still kicking around. He's still got his microphones. We just got to get him uh, back on the beat with the interviews. Uh, Thanks a lot, Emra. Thanks, Chris. It was nice to be back. All right. That's all for this episode. Want to remind our listeners, we've got a bibliography on the website ottomanhistorypodcast.com where you also find a link where you can look up 
Emra's new book, Sultanin Jasuslara, out from Chronic Kitap. It's in Turkish. It will only cost you 24 lira to pick it up. If you buy online, it's even cheaper, actually. And if you buy online, it's even cheaper. Not going to break the bank, but it's a nice, meaty piece of research. You also find our bonus conversation on the website. Uh, and if you want to find out about future episodes and stay in touch with our audience of over 30,000 followers on Facebook, just follow us there on our Facebook page where we're always posting our latest content. That's all for this episode. Thank you for tuning in and join us next time in another episode of Ottoman History Podcast. <laughs>